Okay, so everybody knows the verse in Ephesians. It's Ephesians 6.12, which says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And that is certainly true, isn't it? So we, we get on the news and we look at what's going on in Afghanistan, and it's horrible. But we realize that beneath it all, there's this spiritual struggle. Um, and we have to keep that in mind, that any struggles that we see on the surface below that is the spiritual struggle, the true struggle. And a lot of times, as just being human beings, we get caught up in the senses arguments, the senses reasoning for why things happen the way they do. But we have to recognize that this is a spiritual contest. It's a spiritual struggle. We're not dealing with flesh and blood. We're not dealing with human beings. We're dealing with spiritual forces. So uh, take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. It says in verse 1, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, uh, for many of us, we read this verse and we read there is no condemnation, and then we insert what? There is no self-condemnation. That's not what it says, and that's not what it ever said. Um, certainly, you know, we should be easy on ourselves. We should recognize that Christ dwells in that, uh, what I heard earlier about, you know, that God looks on us and sees Rich's prophecy about how he's just blessed with that creation in each one of us. Boy, isn't that excellent that when God looks upon us, he sees that Christ within us and it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. So yeah, that was, that was tremendous. And so we should look to that. We should recognize that, you know, we're more than the sum total of our sinfulness. In other words, we are that Christ within us. That Christ within us is truly the real you and the real me. But in this context, this is talking about, this is kind of wrapping up what started back in Romans 1 about the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it talks about judgment condemnation, judgment. This is the idea here. So hold your finger here and go to John chapter 3. Now, this section in John 3, we've read many times in this fellowship because it's such a great section. I like it for its clarity. And, you know, that's what the Bible's supposed to do for us is clarify things. So John chapter 3, look in verse 17. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So when we talk about condemnation, this is the condemnation, right? 
It goes on in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, the verdict, the condemnation. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. How about that? Isn't that something? So everybody who loves righteousness, loves goodness, loves justness, will expose themselves to the light to make sure that everything there is from God. You see that? Now, on the other hand, the wicked man will run from that light. He doesn't want to be exposed. He doesn't want to be found out. I, uh, I just love that contrast there. Ultimately, the condemnation is judgment and death. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is speaking, of course, about the second death. Go to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, still keeping your finger back in Romans 8. Romans 10, we're familiar with this, verse 8. It says, what what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. That's so clear. Isn't that so clear? As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That means that God honors his commitments. He honors his commitments. And God committed to us through Christ salvation and eternal life. Let's go back to Romans 8, verse 3. Now it says, For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened through the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man and to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. All right. So we have, you know, we all know that there was the law of the Old Testament, but now we live during a different period of time. This is the period of time which we call grace. And it's the administration of the spirit, right? God didn't just change out the law for grace, you know, out with the old, in with the new. He didn't just say, hmm, the old program didn't seem to work so well, so I think we're going to try something new. The righteous requirements of the law still stand. They still need to be met. Some dispensationalists don't get this. But the same righteous requirements of the Old Testament need to be met. It's just how they're met that has changed, okay? Um, You don't have to turn there, but Romans chapter 3 says that now we know that whatsoever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. The point here is this, that God set the standard through the law. Okay, God said to all of humanity, this is my standard. It was written to the Jews. It was written for the world. This is my standard. Okay, but that's all it was. It was a standard. There was no redemptive mechanism in the law. Right. 
the law just said, this is it. So a person would say, okay, well, I'm a sinful person. How do I become unsinful? The law says, I don't know. You're just sinful, <laughs> right? You are sinful because you did this. So all the law can give to mankind is indictment. That's all the law could do. And if you think about that, without Christ, we are all guilty before the law, all of us, without Christ. The righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, it says in the Word, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. So when we read in Romans 8, 1 through 3 about the law of the Spirit of life, that we are you know, delivered from condemnation through this law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this is the walk of the Spirit. We are delivered through getting born again, and then we walk in manifested deliverance in this walk of the Spirit. Look in verse 5 of chapter 8. It says, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Right? You're setting your mind on something. So, the point here is this. I have a choice. I can choose to walk by the flesh, or I can choose to walk by the Spirit. How do I exercise that choice? By what I mind. By what I set my mind on. Verse 6, the mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled, that word controlled there is out, it's not controlled, God doesn't control our minds, it's directed, but the mind directed by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, and the opposite is true on this as well, God is hostile to it, right? If I am minding the sinful flesh, my mind is hostile to God, and God is hostile to me. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled or those directed by the sinful nature cannot please God. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, it should be all of our desires, you know, being born again. We look at the great mercies of God, the great grace of God, that God did all this through Christ. We've read that verse in the Old Testament. It talks about how his Mercies are new every morning that, you know, we forget not all his benefits in Psalm 103. We talk about God. We're amazed at what God has done for us. It should be an, an, a natural byproduct that we would walk out and serve him. Sometimes not. Sometimes we forget all that God has done for us. And that's typically the sure and direct route to walking by the flesh. Do you understand that? That is by recognizing all that God has done for us that we can walk for him, that we will walk for him. Go to Galatians chapter 5. You just cannot please God by walking by the sinful flesh. You can't do it. Look in verse 13. It says, you, my brethren, were called to be free. We were called to be free. Now, of course, we know that this freedom means that we are liberated from the law, right? In that sense, we are free that we aren't under the, the yoke of the law, that we've been able to be uh, set free from that. And that is a big theme of the book of Galatians. But we also know that the Spirit liberates us from sin and death. Sin and death. I've been saved, born again. I've been saved from eternal death, the second death, through Christ. And I'm also liberated from my sin. And that's the beauty, beautiful thing about the book of Galatians. It says, but it goes on, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, but rather serve one another in love. 
serve one another in love. We, again, have a choice, don't we? We can choose to indulge our sinful nature, but if we choose that, if we choose to indulge our sinful nature, we cannot walk in step with the Spirit. You can't do it. A person might ask himself in a reflective moment, how spiritual am I? And the responding question would be, well, how much love are you showing to your brethren, right? Because if you're walking by the Spirit, then you will be loving your brother or sister. That's the manifestation of walking by the Spirit. Look at verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you see that love and walking by the Spirit are inseparably joined. Inseparably joined. That's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, if we're going to talk about the law, the entire law is summed up in the single command, love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, that's what it's all about, right? That transcends administrations, that we are walking according to the Spirit in this administration, but it still remains that you love your neighbor as yourself. That's Old Testament, but that's the crux of the whole walk, right? Remember, uh, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 John, it says, if anyone says, I love God, yet he hates or thinks ill of his brother, he's a liar, it says. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How about that? That's so important. Now, listen to this in verse 15 of Galatians. It says, but if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, has anybody here been in a church that has done this? I certainly have. And it's horrible and it's shameful where people, born-again Christians, set free, able to bless each other in just unique and wonderful ways by the power of God. And what are they doing? Biting and devouring one another. It's just, it's, a, it's amazing. And this biting and devouring, when we talk about this biting and devouring, it becomes obsessive. It becomes obsessive. The spirit is driven by vindictiveness, self-righteousness, and envy. People biting at each other. It's no good. Verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. How about that? Live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the sinful nature. All right? I think this is an astounding verse, right? Live by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. The corollary is true. Live by the flesh and you will not live by the Spirit. You cannot will yourself into not living by the flesh. I know that's a little awkward, but you can't make yourself not walk by the flesh. Reflexively, you will always fall back into the flesh. If God isn't front and center in your heart and in your mind and in your mouth in declaring his greatness, you will fall reflexively back into the flesh. It's just the way it is. That's part of our sinful nature is that's where we go. You don't hit a threshold in your Christian walk where all of a sudden everything that comes out of your mouth and everything that comes through your mind is spiritual and wonderful and good. It's not. <laughs> it's just not. But it's what you mind. It's what you think about. It's what you dwell in. It's where your heart is, right? What's that verse in the Old Testament um, about where your uh, treasure is that will your heart be also, right? Oh, that's Matthew. Yeah. So your heart, where your heart is, that where, you, or where your thoughts are, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. 
the thing that you value the most, the thing that you value the most. Um, I think it's very important. And we have to ask ourselves, well, what do I value the most? Do I value my position? Do I value the accreditation? What do I value? Do I value the money? Do I, there's a lot of things that a human being can value. Or do I value my relationship with God? That's what I have to ask myself. It said uh, what I said in uh, Romans chapter 8, 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on, natur- on what nature desires. But those who live according, in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. And we choose. We choose. So for the believer who sets his mind on spiritual things and walks in love towards his brethren, he will walk by the Spirit. That's how it goes. Verse 17. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with one another, so that you do not do what you want. I always like the King James. It says the flesh lusts or lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would, right? It's not just a simple desire. It's a, it's a lust. It's stronger. It's a longing for. So if you long for the things of the flesh, the things of the flesh long, they lust against the spirit, right? There's this obsessive quality. It's consuming. It drives you. So when a person is walking by the flesh, walking by the, the sinful nature, it drives you. Or the spirit lusts against the flesh. It's a consuming quality. And you say, it's consuming? I always think about that verse where it talks about where Jesus was in the temple and he turned over the tables in the temple and his disciples looked at each other and said, the zeal of mine house has eaten him up. Well, the word for eaten him up is consumes. The zeal of thine house has consumed me. That's a good zeal. That's the kind of zeal that we want. We want a zeal that consumes us. Galatians says that it's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. Provided the purpose is good. So we want that kind of zeal. Verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under the law. So how do we know the difference? We have zeal. We have, you know, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, right? There's zeal on both sides. There's this obsessive, compulsive behavior of sinfulness, lusting against the spirit. And then there's this, obsessive would be a good word, but in a good way, the spirit lusting against the flesh, like Jesus Christ was, you know, his zeal consumed him, okay? You have the two. How do you tell the difference? By the fruit, by the fruit. The Bible says that a tree is known by its fruit, right? That's how we tell the difference. Chapter, what is it, 519? It says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. I think about this and we did it, we had a teaching last year where we talked about Derek Prince is teaching on intimidation, manipulation, and domination, and how that's witchcraft, about mind control, about bullying spiritually. Goes on and says hatred, discord. What is discord? It's variance, it's opposition, it's contention, strife and contention, jealousy, 
Fear that someone's going to take something that you have. That's jealousy. That's the difference between jealousy and envy. Envy is that somebody has something that I don't have, and I envy him for it. Jealousy is I have something, and I'm afraid somebody's going to come along and take it away from me. Fits of rage. Fits of rage. Selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. We talked about that last week, about how you would expect to see selfish ambition out in the world, What you wouldn't expect, but unfortunately is very present, is within the church. People being ambitious within the church. I always think about Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Jesus made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the fashion of man. He could have snatched after godhood, but he didn't. And what happened? He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. And God highly exalted him and gave him a name which was above all names, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow. And see, that's the whole point here, that we allow God to do it. We're not clamoring our way to the top. We're satisfied and content where God has us now. Remember the analogy I gave a couple weeks ago about how I had to wash the toilets and how that was the most valuable lesson I ever learned? Because that's where I belonged. God is the one who brings us to where we're going. And it gets very dangerous when I try to clamor my way to the top. Dissension, quarreling and striving. That's dissensions, factions, factions, breaking things up, people forming into cliques, envying, envying. Remember, that's what I just said. Envying is where we envy what somebody else has. Envy and pride go hand in hand. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no rewards for you. We talked about that last week in uh, the book of Corinthians. It gets burned up. It's the wood, hay, and stubble. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what is fruit? When we talk about fruit in the Bible, what is fruit? Well, it's the product of your life. It's the product of your work, right? In this regard, it's the product of God's work in our life, what we allow Him to do in our lives. So the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience. Patience, long-suffering, dealing with people, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control against such, there is no law. You can't produce these qualities with a law. Isn't that something? Now, I wrote a note here that says there shouldn't be a one of us who reads this list of fruit of the Spirit and doesn't feel a little twinge in your conscience at some place you drop the ball. Because every time I read this, this list, I go, oof, not really manifesting too much fruit in that category. In other words, it's not an all or nothing deal. All right. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And that's what I was talking about earlier. You know, the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. It's more than a simple desire. It's a passion. You know, it's driving. And it's not a one-time thing either. It's not something that you do and then you're done with it. Yeah, I, I hit that point you know, 20 years ago that I finally, you know, got past it. No, that's not how it works. We are crucifying the flesh all the time. We are putting to death the flesh. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. I love that. I love that. 
right? I think about the verse where it says that we are workers together with God. Jesus said, my father worketh here unto, or worketh to now, and, and I work. So we are working with God. We are in step with his work. Does that make sense to everybody? This isn't God doing his thing in heaven and we doing our thing on earth, that we are supposed to be in step with God. We are about his work, his work. And then 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is really interesting to me. This is an interesting summary of what we just read about in the flesh. We went through all the different fruit, but then he says, let us not, in summary, be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We know that what does conceit means? Well, it means that I place myself over you. I think I'm better than you. And this conceit yields a provoking and an envying spirit. And I think of provoking this way. You have a kid, he gets a cut on his hand or arm or something, and that cut scabs over. And your kid's constantly picking at the scab, constantly picking at the scab. And you tell him, leave it alone, it'll never heal. But your kid keeps picking and picking and picking. This is provoking. It's harassment. God doesn't like that. Yeah, you get a scar that way. That's right. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Galatians 1, 7 says, it talks about, you know, uh, another gospel, which is not another, but there are some who would trouble you. That word trouble is terrazzo, agitate with various emotions, that it would trouble you and pervert the gospel of Christ. Picking and picking and picking. Go to Romans chapter 8, look at verse 9. It says, you, however, are not controlled, again, directed, you are, you are directed not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but your spirit is alive because of righteousness. Verse 11, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you or which lives in you. Verse 12, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. Um, this was one of the early verses in my walk that really took hold of my mind and heart. King James reads, we are debtors no longer to the flesh to serve the flesh. It's kind of a figure of speech there. It says, we are debtors but we're not debtors to the flesh. Satan wishes to make us debtors to the flesh, doesn't he? He wants us owing the flesh, either your own or somebody else's flesh. God says, just say no. <laughs> we owe nothing to the flesh, nothing. Part of our standing fast in our liberty is recognizing that we owe nothing to the flesh, to the sinful nature. Verse 13, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. Is that clear? But if you, or but if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. You see that? And how do I know if I'm living according to the things of God? Well, is God my sufficiency? That's, a, that's an easy way to figure it out. God should be my sufficiency in every category of life. The Bible says in uh, Romans 13 that we are, uh, we are not to make provisions to the flesh to fulfill the lust of them. Um, no provisions for the flesh. Instead, we're told to crucify the flesh. 
We are sons of God by birth, but we are manifested sons of God when we are led by the Spirit. Does that make sense, everybody? We are sons of God by the Spirit, or by by being born again, but we are manifestly sons of God when we walk by the Spirit. Verse 15, For you did not receive the Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Now, I want to read something to you about Abba, Father. Mike Tomberlin turned me on to this. I know many of us have been taught that Abba means daddy, and that's not quite accurate. So sit back and listen to this. I think this is important. The real meaning of Abba says, when I was landed at Tel Aviv airport in June of 2007, I had to use the restroom after a long delay. I had just been interrogated by the Israeli authorities. I'll spare you the details for three hours upon landing in Israel for the first time. Let's just say I really had to go. Washing my hands in the restroom, I overheard an exchange between a Jewish father and his son. You should know that they both knew English and Hebrew. The father said to his son, When I ask you to do something, I want you to call me Abba. Hearing this, I was surprised by three things. That he was speaking English and Hebrew in the same breath. That he was using an everyday experience for child training. And then it has in parentheses, good for him. The real meaning of Abba is not what I had been taught. Most people think Abba means daddy, but that's not quite right. Daddy doesn't have the same bite as Abba. It's personal, which is part of the meaning, but that's not the whole story. Abba doesn't mean daddy. Abba doesn't mean dad. Abba means father, I will obey you. Most people think Abba simply means having an intimate relationship with your father, But there are actually two elements, not just one. The two elements are intimacy and obedience. It's the obedience part that we miss with equating it to just daddy. I don't gather this meaning simply from a personal experience in the Holy Land. As I'll show you, this is how it's used in Scripture, too. The Jewish father and son exchange I witnessed in Tel Aviv revealed two ele- or revealed both elements. The son was struggling to follow the father's instruction as they washed his hands together. He was a small boy, by the way. As they spoke, you could tell that they were close in relationship by the feel of trust that they had. Yet the father was teaching his son to say Abba because it meant more than just closeness. Abba, by the dad primary, meant authority that commands obedience. Authority that commands obedience. The close connection was just part part and parcel for obedience. Abba is more like the English sir than daddy. Abba is a term of endearment, intimacy, and close relationship on the one hand, and obedience on the other. It's both intimacy and obedience. Neither sir nor daddy are adequate translations. The true meaning of Abba is, Father, I will obey you. Both elements must be present. Only a child can use it, intimacy. Only an obedient child can use it. It's not just a modern-day Jewish thing, though, as I mentioned. The meaning I'm promoting here is exactly what we see in the New Testament when the Aramaic word is transliterated into Greek as Abba. It is used only three times in the New Testament, Mark 14.36, Romans 8.15, and Galatians 4.6. And each of them reveal this meaning, right? So isn't that cool? So back to 
back to Romans, verse 16, it says, The Spirit itself, not himself, the Spirit itself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. So this spirit of Christ is within us. It's Christ in you, Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the course before us and the choice. Do we walk by the spirit or do we walk by the flesh? There are many churches, many many ministries out there that are satisfied to walk by the flesh. They think that everything that they have is through man's ingenuity, man's mental ability, man, 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 man. But the walk of the Spirit is God, 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 and Christ, Christ, Christ. God's desire is that his children walk in the Spirit. As Paul said in Galatians 4.19, my dear children, for whom I again, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. In a nutshell, this is what this ministry is about facilitating Christ's formation in people, that Christ would be formed in each of us. It's so much more than just teaching a handful of doctrinal distinctions, how TLTF is different from others because we don't believe that Jesus is God. Oh my goodness, is that all? We should be teaching people, it's Christ in you. We represent Christ. And I'm going to finish up here in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And look in verse 27. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone in all wisdom that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. How about that? So that's what I wanted to share. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for this ministry. And we thank you, Father, for the men and women and children who are laboring that father that they are laboring according to this good this new rule this rule of the spirit i thank you heavenly father that you will show us the difference between the spirit and the flesh that father the word of god is so magnified in our hearts and minds that the walk of the spirit and the walk of the flesh become very evident i thank you heavenly father for making us strong and father establishing our steps and father that we can reach out and help this dying world. I thank you for these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. It felt like a burden But once I could grasp it You took me further Further than I was asking And simply to see you It's worth it
I will 